Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. My name's Kevin Valentin. And I'm the other host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabro. Kev, what's popping on this Thursday, my guy? Chilling, bro. Long day of work. Long week of work. Just can't wait for the weekend to start, to be honest. You got any plans for this weekend? Yeah, man. Going to the Twins-Orioles opening day for spring training over there in Hammond Stadium by my house. So that should be relaxing. Beers, hot dogs. Going to hang out with my girl and some friends. But something different to change the pace. Yeah, it'll be nice since spring training is just literally right around the corner. And then I know you got a uh, you got a Yankees game coming up pretty soon too. Yeah, I believe in uh, in March. I think my mom hooked it up with uh, some tickets for the Yankees Red Sox in Red Sox Stadium or Fenway, whatever JetBlue Park crap is right down the block from me. So that'll be fun. Me and my dad heckling some Red Sox fans. It'll be a good time. What about you? Nothing much. I mean, I have Saturday off this weekend, so I work, I work tomorrow on Friday, and then after that, I'll probably just get some stuff done with my car probably gonna put it on the market pretty soon just kind of finalizing some things with that so i already have one car that i drive around to work but a car that i've had for like 10 years at this point gonna probably move off of it pretty soon so just trying to clean it up get it ready to sell and then move on from there bittersweet man we've uh we've had quite a bit of adventures in that vehicle back in college yeah we, we we bumped it in the whip back in the day for sure Damn, we sound old as hell. But anyway, uh, we're going to just move on right to the agenda. So, guys, obviously, with the NFL being over and the NBA just getting started after the All-Star break, the agenda isn't going to be too packed, but it is going to be action-filled enough to kind of talk about some different aspects. So, first off, we're going to talk about the NBA. Then we'll transition into the NFL. So, first, we're going to talk about Russell Westbrook. He has officially signed for the remainder of the season with the L.A. Clippers going to kind of be funny obviously moving into the opposite locker room in the same arena that he was just playing with over the last two years so hopefully when the Lakers and Clippers play again before the season's up we're going to be excited to see that narrative and how that kind of ends up playing out then of course in the NBA the draft is going to be in the next couple of months which means we have to talk about the prospects and I mean it's just trending it's all over the news it's all over social media Victor Wembenyama who is the number one overall prospect who plays out in France has been measured recently at 7 feet 5 inches. And he's averaging upwards of 22, 23 points, almost 10 rebounds. So we're going to talk about his overall prospect and what we think he's going to do in the NBA, what he's going to provide in terms of an immediate impact, and then some areas that we're a little bit concerned about. So like kind of like an overall prospect grading. Then we'll transition into the NFL. Lamar Jackson and the, the Baltimore Ravens contract situation has... It seems to have gotten out of hand. Lamar wants a fully guaranteed contract. Lamar's been hurt the last couple of seasons. Obviously, the Ravens are not willing to give him that fully guaranteed contract. 
they are millions of dollars apart in terms of where they're expected to be or where they want to be. So Kyle and I will, of course, give our thoughts on where that's going to be. And if that ends up meaning Lamar gets franchise tagged, does he get traded? Does he hold out? We'll see what happens. But again, we'll give our thoughts there. And then, of course, to close it out, we are going to give our three most important areas that two teams that have just been recently eliminated in the playoffs um, need to improve for 2023. And that's going to be the Cincinnati Bengals, who lost in the AFC Championship, and the San Francisco 49ers, who lost in the NFC Championship. So we'll kind of give our thoughts on what those two, two, what those two, two, what those two teams need to do in order to improve for the, the following season. But without further ado, let's get it started. Kyle, I'll kick this one your way. With Russell Westbrook coming from the Lakers, and we've talked about this a couple of times throughout the season, what do you think he is going to provide the Clippers in terms of guard depth? Well, he's going to be their number two option at the point guard position. Obviously, when you look at their depth chart right now at their starting five, Terrence Mann does occupy that number one spot. But when it comes to Russell's effectiveness, this upcoming stretch for the Clippers, he has an opportunity here. Obviously, he maximized his potential in that six-man role with the Lakers. And throughout his certain stretches within those first couple months as a Laker this year, uh, he was definitely getting some nods as a potential six-man of the year candidate. And then there were stretches where he kind of fell back down to earth. It's kind of the ups and downs that kind of come with Russell Westbrook over the last couple of years. When you look at Russell with Houston, didn't really necessarily work out there, but he had a good comeback stint with the Wizards. And then he kind of had a mixed bag when it comes to the Lakers. So when it comes to Russell's effectiveness with the Clippers, it's iffy for me because you're going to get a little bit of good that comes with Russell, obviously with his athleticism, his ability to get to the rim quickly. Those are some positive aspects with him. But then there are times where he gets in the shooting slumps and he'll shoot bricks. He'll shoot 20 to 25% a game. But if he's going to be that six-man option coming off of the bench for the Clippers, I think that he could serve as a decent utility player for them. But I want to be careful the way that I phrase this because I made a point about Russell Westbrook last year about where his career is going, and I'm going to reinforce this point. To me, this is it when it comes to Russell and his future aspects or future prospects when it comes to the rest of his career. He's got an opportunity to be a part of a good team with the Clippers and try to get a championship next to his name. And he's got to maximize this opportunity as best as he can. And he of all people knows that. And he's got to go out there and play. Because if it does not work out here with the Clippers, if it goes south and you're getting more of the the Houston Rockets, Russell Westbrook, or at times what we saw from Russ with the Lakers where he just couldn't shoot effectively, Russell's going to get passed around the league very similar to what Carmelo Anthony experienced at the end of his career. And I think that Russell still has the ability to play. But to me, this comes down to whether or not that front offices want to make moves in regards to Russell to be able to bolster their roster with him in the fold. It's either that or they stick with their young cores, with their young guys that they have on the roster. And that's going to be dictated by what I think Russell's going to do here for the next two, maybe three months, depending on how far the Clippers go into the playoffs this year, because they will be a playoff team. They're top four in the Western Conference right now. I believe they're only nine games back of the first seed. The Denver Nuggets occupy that spot. They're probably not going to get that just because Denver's 
far and ahead. And there's just not enough time where I think the Clippers are going to catch up. But they could try to make their way to potential three seed, at best maybe a two seed. And if Russell plays up to snuff here, I think that he could give them a decent position. Obviously, you know, when you talk about the Clippers, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, those are the two focal pieces of the team. But Russell could be a huge player coming off the bench. Like I said, this is a big opportunity for him. And if he makes the most of it, it could serve him well for the next couple of years. And if it doesn't, to me, you know, this is really the beginning of the end when it comes to Russell Westbrook's career in the NBA. And I'll simply just leave it at that. I'm really not going to go in that regard, right? Kyle and I already had not necessarily a disagreement, but kind of a difference of opinion in terms of what we believe Russell Westbrook's going to provide for the Clippers. I'm not going to go as far and say that his career is detrimentally dependent upon the result of this season. I mean, the Clippers have been doing what they're doing without Russell. Him being on this squad pretty much just adds that definitive point guard role. I know that Reggie Jackson was there, but Reggie Jackson wasn't a true passing point guard. He was more of a two, more of a score. Um, Luke Kennard, obviously, more focalized in the shooting guard role and the small forward. So they haven't necessarily had a definitive point guard. I mean, Terrence Mann played the two and the three at Florida State. I don't necessarily know that he's going to be able to facilitate the basketball at a consistent enough clip to be considered a point guard. But once again, the definitive roles of what the NBA used to be by position is no longer the same. Some people are playing positions that aren't what they were drafted for and isn't what they're classified as, but they're just filling the role for the sake of, I guess, stat padding or, you know, well, technically we're going to go small ball today. Like Draymond's 6'8", and he plays the five a lot of times for Golden State, and that's a very undersized five. So that's kind of the point I'm getting at. Anyway, my biggest thing with Russell is the second unit he is going to be a part of is going to be a very effective unit. For me, what I'm seeing right now in that second unit, you have Powell, you have Eric Gordon, you have Plumlee, and then there's there's the fourth that, Kyle, you had mentioned who that fourth was going to be, that power forward. I can't remember who it is, but it's just, it continues to add to the point of you have two shooters. Powell is shooting 40% from three. Eric Gordon's a known three-point shooter. Obviously, Mason, or is it Mason Plumley that was from the, the from the uh, from the Hornets? Yeah, he, I, think he, I think he had a stint with the, uh, the Denver Nuggets, if I remember correctly. And uh, the power forward that you're looking for is Nicholas Batum. So Batum, another shooter, and then you, is is it Mason Plumley? Yep, an alley ooper, a guy that can block shots, an athletic five. I, again, he can run the pick and roll. Obviously, Nicholas Batum can hit in the corner. Nicholas Batum's a good defender. I think this was for the sheer fact that the Clippers needed some depth. Clippers needed a point guard. Russell's going to be able to facilitate. Russell is going to be able to play solid offense in terms of getting to the basket creating mismatches on the floor, especially running that high pick and roll with Mason Plumley, and then finding ways to get those shooters, hitting those shooters in stride. And if he does play with the first unit, if he happens to run on the floor with Paul George, with Kawhi Leonard, with Zubac, and the Morris brother, all of them can shoot, obviously outside of Zubac. You just have to run. It's like John Wall said when he first got there, if I'm the third option, I really wish you luck. Russell can push the floor. Russell can finish at the rim. We all know how explosive he is, and we all know he's got some of the best court vision in the NBA. When you have two strong wings, athletic wings at that, in Kawhi and PG, we've already seen Russell play with Paul George, and I think Paul George had a pretty stout career year that year, if I'm not mistaken. He was in the MVP conversation, and I believe he fell in third or fourth 
And that was with Russell Westbrook on his team. James Harden won an MVP. That was with Russell Westbrook on his team. People forget he has played with MVP caliber players. Kevin Durant won an MVP in 2014. Russell, Russell Westbrook was his point guard. Now you have two MVP caliber players at the wing. You have a good old-fashioned big that can run the pick and roll and the second unit big, and you have shooters. I think this is a way better fit than what it was going to be with the, the Lakers because Kawhi brings the ball up sometimes. PG, PG brings the ball up sometimes. But when it comes to Russell, when he's on the floor, he won't have to go back and forth with Braun anymore. He's not going to have to say, you know what, I want the ball in my hands. Russell can distribute the ball effectively. He's going to be able to take advantage of one-on-one matchups, and I really believe he's going to be able to kick that second unit into gear. And again, in spurts, if inserted into the starting lineup, I really believe that Russell Westbrook, Kawhi Leonard, and Paul George can be a solid three-headed beast when it comes to postseason time. Yeah, and I feel similar in that way. The only difference is, for me, when it comes to Russell, is just his ability to execute. Because... There's no denying the athletic ability that he possesses. Like you said, his court vision. He has great court vision, but there are some times where errant passes and turnovers occur. And trust me, when it comes to Russell over the last couple of years, some of those games we can look back to, he's had a decent amount of turnovers that come along with it. Obviously, you know, when you're handling the ball as the point guard, you're going to turn a ball over. It's just how frequently are you turning it over? And Russell has had some games where He's turned the ball over quite frequently. But as far as I see it, when it comes to him being in the fold, he's got to maximize this opportunity. And, you know, when people look at it on paper, you got Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and Russell Westbrook. I mean, that's their three-headed monster that they're they're going to roll with. And will it be enough to compete with the rest of the Western Conference? Who's to say? Because when you look at the Phoenix Suns, I mean, they just added Kevin Durant. You know, you got DeAndre Ayton, Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and now KD. That, I mean, that's a four-headed monster that you have to deal with in Phoenix. Now, I think that Russell is a better option than John Wall. It doesn't mean that John Wall can't play. It's just when it comes to this year in particular, I think that Russell's definitely played better than John Wall. But it just kind of comes with the territory that I've mentioned with Russell. Over the last couple of years, he's gone from team to team to team for these really short stints, and you don't really know what you're going to get because we can look back to the Wizards tenure that he had alongside Bradley Beal, and he played relatively well. And then when you look at the Lakers, up and down. Last year was a bit of a tough stretch for Russ. This year had some good stretches, but also had some bad stretches. And, you know, there was a point in time where him and Darvin Ham were getting contentious in just their business relationship on the court. So when it comes to Russ... He has to be able to maximize his opportunity to the best of his ability. And if he does, I think it will set him up pretty nicely for the next couple of years. But, I mean, when it comes to him as his overall ability to be a starter in the NBA, I think that's pretty much coming to an end. I think the only time where that may be a case is if someone gets hurt and he's their emergency option to play the starting point guard position. But barring that one instance, you know, Russell's going to have to be pretty content with going as a guy that's going to come off the bench, but that is a role that teams need. And I think that he could provide a huge spark coming off the bench. It's just to me, can he execute at a high level enough to make the Clippers viable for a championship run this year? And obviously time will tell. We got about 20, 25 games left in the season for the Clippers. If they make their way into the top two, top three seeds in the Western conference, and he's definitely a big contributor 
a big contributor to that, then he'll be set up pretty nicely. But it could go the other way too. So it's up to him. And he has to be able to gel with his teammates. You know, if they lock down the chemistry, that'll be great. But could go south too. And, you know, I'm a little bit hesitant to just say that Russell's going to be this huge spark plug that's going to send the Clippers onto a Western Conference Finals appearance. They could definitely make that if they execute at a high level. Right. But it wouldn't surprise me if they could knock that out of the second round of the playoffs either. Like, I, I just, just have to that throw that, that out there. That relationship with PG of previously playing with him, I think that is the big decision or the big reason why that decision was made. While at the same time, I think that he had to speak to Russ and be like, listen, this ain't your show anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like when, when PG got traded over to OKC, that was a, this is your show. I'm playing alongside you as opposed to now in LA. This is like, yo, this is me and Kawhi's team. We need you to do this role. He did it for the Lakers. He has to buy into the culture as a Clipper. Whatever they tell him to do, whatever Ty Lu says has to be done. He can't be having problems on the sideline. He can't be having issues in the locker room. He can't be a distraction to the media. He's got to shut up play his role, or else I will agree with you. If this goes south, I don't see another team giving him another opportunity, especially because of his mouth. We talked about this last week. With Carmelo Anthony being blackballed from the NBA for whatever reason, if he's getting blackballed and still being able to put out 15 to 20 points a game if need be, Russell Westbrook, it don't matter if he's able to give you 25 and 5. If you can't shut up and you've had multiple issues with head coaches over the last few years, it's not a good look for you. Well, it... If I remember correctly, and I could have this wrong, you could point it out if I'm wrong here. Was Carmelo Anthony on that same yeah. Thunder unit alongside and he was Russell? Horrible and, that year. And here's the thing: now Russ is in that Carmelo situation because Russell is third fiddle to Kawhi and Paul George. Paul George has always really been that number two option when it comes to these kind of like I'm not going to call them super teams, but we'll say three headed teams or three headed monster on. on some of these teams that he's been a part of. And, you know, Russell went from essentially the number one option or like the 1A option that he was with the Thunder alongside Paul George. Now he's in that third spot behind Kawhi and Paul George. And it's kind of come back full circle in that regard because now he can kind of look back to what he had during his Thunder days alongside Paul George and Carmelo. And maybe he can learn a little bit from the past in regards to the mistakes that Carmelo made being in that third option when he was a member of the Thunder. So when it comes to Russ, he experience is on his side here because he could look back to recent history, which is not that long ago. It was only a couple years ago. And maybe he learns from the mistakes of Carmelo's past in that regard. And maybe makes what would be kind of a up and down year this year to a relatively positive one if he's able to maximize his opportunity with the Clippers. It's in his, no pun intended, bro. It's in his court. And he's got to make the most of it. He's and in full control of his destiny. So we'll kind yeah. of, uh, we'll leave it at that. There's an individual that hasn't even begun his career yet in the NBA, and that is going to be number one overall prospect, Victor Wembenyama. See, I got to keep looking at it and reading it as uh, I say That's it. okay. If I try if I try to do it off memory, I'm I'm out here. I'm a, I'm a, a pronounce a continent or something. Guys, just bear in mind, we are probably going to screw up his name a bunch of times in this upcoming segment. So just be forewarned. More than likely, 
we're gonna get tongue tied try to say this guy's last name. It's and not more the than likely name in the world. We'll, okay? we'll probably just resort to Victor at a certain point. Yeah. So I mean, at this point, I'm gonna actually cash in on that now that you said that. Victor's been the number one overall prospect since pretty much what the end of last year. Everyone's been hyping him up. Kind of like summer league. I mean, like he kind of jumped onto the scene a little abruptly, but he has kind of like been gaining traction over the last full year in the NBA. Yeah, I'd say the first time that I heard of him was maybe late 2021, early 2022, probably somewhere around that time frame. But, you know, with him only being 19 years old, he is definitely garnering a lot more of a social media influence. And that's despite the fact that he's over in Europe. He's playing over in France right now. But, I mean, Kev, like you said earlier, the guy's 7'5". I mean, the guy is literally six to seven inches taller than some opposing team centers. So that's a pretty big difference, especially with a kid who's 19 years old and could still have the potential to grow maybe another half inch to another inch over the next couple of years. Yeah. I mean, the the biggest thing that we want to prove, right? I don't necessarily know if we want to go isolated here with the, with the screen time because I, I kind of want to have an open dialogue here with this segment. Yeah. The the big thing with Victor, right, to kind of just dive right into it, seven feet, right? Seven five. Haven't mm. seen somebody of that height, that actual length and height since Yao Ming's. Yao Ming was seven five or seven six. Yao Ming was a lot bigger in stature, right? He was a lot heavier, he was a lot wider. Victor also has some lingering knee issues. Victor can shoot. Victor's got decent ball handling. He can finish at the rim, he can block shots. Like he's a definitive big. But he's athletic, and he can space the floor. When was the last athletic seven-footer that we saw that could shoot and block shots? Pretty sure that was Kristaps Porzingis a few years ago. All the rage, all the hype. Yes, all Nick fans, especially that kid, were like, who the hell is that? They cried, and then he came out there and just flooded the garden with poster after poster, sharp shooting after sharp shooting. I mean, rejecting shots. When Kristaps came into the league, when KP was a kid or younger kid, he was just all over the place. He was a mm-hmm. sensation. But the consistent thing was injuries. So, I mean, like, Kyle, correct me if I'm wrong here. The biggest concern for this prospect is, is he going to be able to stay healthy? I mean, when it comes to Victor's overall physical stature, I mean, he's 7'5". This is a tall guy. But, Kev, this guy, when it comes to Victor, is as lanky as what KD was back when he was in college. And KD was basically a stick. And... Not even that. KD was a stick throughout like the first couple years in his NBA career. I mean, there were highlights of KD back when he was with the Seattle Supersonics before they transitioned to the Thunder. (laughs) Soaking wet, he was just a stick. I don't know how much he weighed. He probably weighed like 185 to 200 pounds just because he was 6'10". But it didn't look like it just because he had no muscle whatsoever. When you look at Victor, Victor 7'5", it has that same physical and muscular stature that KD had. And Victor could technically even be skinnier. And one of the things that's going to be interesting to see as Victor goes into his NBA career, because it is going to happen probably within the next couple of months or so, but he has to get bigger. He has to get into the gym and add some sort of muscle to be able to contend with NBA caliber players. And it was like you said, Kevin, When it comes to him specifically, he's got a nice shooting stroke. When he's given space and he's given opportunities to shoot the rock, he can shoot from 15 to 20 feet out, and he can shoot behind the three-point line. It's just, is he going to be able to do that and gain space in the NBA? Because when we went over 
some of the game film that he's been a part of in this European circuit, you could just tell that the level of competition that he's going up against is not the same compared to what he's going to face in the NBA. It's just the overall pace. It's going to be a night and day difference. And for me, when I look at Victor, the biggest thing outside of gaining muscle is going to be just building up his overall athleticism. He has to get faster. And granted, he can use his size to his advantage, especially on the defensive side, because it's not going to take too many steps. It's not going to take too many steps for him to protect the rim, because he could literally probably take a step, step and a half from the free throw line and probably get to the rim. Because being seven five, it doesn't take that much effort to be able to take one step over, if not two steps over, to potentially block a shot or at least defend the rim. And if he's able to do those two things build muscle, and just build up his overall athleticism, I think that there's a chance that he could be a pretty good player in the NBA. I'm not convinced that he's just going to take the league by storm when he first comes into the NBA. Because we've looked at bigs in the past. You could look at Giannis when he first came into the league. Giannis was a stick compared to what he is now. Giannis gained like 25, 30, if not 35 pounds of muscle over the last couple years. And he is a freight train compared to what he first was coming into the NBA. Now, Victor could have a similar type of progress when it comes to what he does in the gym. But I don't think he's going to have a build like Giannis. If anything, I think Victor's going to have a very similar to build, a very similar build to what KD had. Where he'll gain muscle as he goes along, but it's not going to be as prominent as what Giannis went through. But the difference between Victor and Giannis is that Victor's going to have like a, he's going to have what seven inches on him when it comes to his overall height. I mean, that's going to be that's a big difference. I think that somebody makes Giannis look little. I know, and that's something that for me, it's it's going to be hard to gauge that and see how effective that Giannis could be against someone like him. And it, the biggest thing is just get bigger in the gym and just build up the athleticism. I think if he's able to do those two things effectively, I think three, four years down the road, if he's able to just improve his overall game on top of that too, he could definitely be a pretty big force in the NBA. But I think that first year, maybe the first two years in the NBA, I think he's just going to get adjusted to the pace of the game, which it's going to be a light year's difference compared to what it is in Europe. Just because I think the overall offensive pace is far more quicker than what it is in Europe, but I think Victor has some chances to potentially make some big moves in the NBA, but I don't think it's going to happen initially. It's not going to, it's not going to be like he's going to walk into the NBA and just take the league by storm. I don't think that's going to happen, but yeah, I mean the pressure that they're putting this kid on. I mean, we've heard comparisons to the biggest prospect since LeBron James, and that was obviously 20 years ago. And that's just—it's not the same thing, at least not in our opinion. That that's that's a that's a he's, tall task for a he's comparison. He's one of he's one of the he's biggest prospects. He's not the, but he's one of the biggest that we've seen in quite some time. And I think it's simply just Literally. because he's so tall. Uh, yeah, it's, it, no pun intended. Exactly. It's, it's so like I said, not to take away from what the kid can do. Right? He's averaging 22 points a game this year. He's averaging three blocks per game, nine and a half rebounds per game. He's averaging two offensive boards per game. He's shooting 81% from the free throw line. But my biggest thing is he takes a lot of threes for a big. 
He mm-hmm. takes almost five and a half threes a game and only makes one and a half. That's 29%. That is a high-volume shooter for a guy that's technically classified as the center. And I don't know if that's him trying to be flashy. I don't know if that's him forcing up shots. I don't know if that's him saying, well, I'm going number one overall, so it doesn't necessarily matter. I'm going to show that I can shoot the ball. So I will say that that's one thing offensively he needs to work on. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I watch every single one of his games. Kyle and I alluded to we watched a couple of games. We watched a couple of highlights to see what he's really about. And again, he has a beautiful shot. He has some fundamental skills. He has solid footwork. But like we said... The injury thing we got to pay attention to, he already has knee issues at 18, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. That is something you have to monitor. Big guys like that do not last when it comes to foot, leg, knee, lower body issues. Horrible for them. I mean, look what happened to Greg Oden. Look what happened to Yao Ming. Every single tall, big center. Look at KP. Now he's starting to get into a little bit more of a rhythm in Washington, but it took him years after New York, even in Dallas with all the other injuries like People like this don't last long. And it's Mm -hmm. usually in short spurts where we see greatness, short flashes where we see how good he can be. And if he's going to go into the NBA this small, this injury prone, this weak, and from a strength standpoint, he's not going to last long. It takes one big guy to put a shoulder in his chest, and he's going to go 10 feet back. He's going to say, holy shit, can I do this? So. Again, not to take away from what he can bring to a table for an organization as a rim protector and overall somebody that can stretch the floor. He has a lot to improve upon, both physically and, of course, his, his, his athletic ability. But he is going to do very big things in the NBA if he can change or alter some of those features. Yeah, and I just want to make one final point about Victor. I mean, okay, we do have to put this into context. He is 19 years old. Mm-hmm. This is not somebody who's 25, 26 years old and has been in the league for a couple of years. There's going to be some growing pains that comes along his basketball journey. And it will be good for him in the long run to be able to be exposed to what he's going to face in the NBA. It's like I said, when it comes to him being in the NBA that first year or two, to me, that's just going to be a learning experience for him. The overall pace of the game. I think there's going to be a much more bigger emphasis on offense here in the United States and over in Europe because it just seems as if in the United States, points come a lot more easy over here than in Europe because defense is kind of an afterthought with the way that the NBA is played now. Unfortunately. But I think those first two years in the NBA are going to serve him well as long as he doesn't get hurt. If he gets hurt, then... I mean, look what happened to Chet Holmgren. uh, Right Hopefully off the bat, he, in, a, in a non-official game. It, and over. you know what? And you know what's crazy? Is Chet wasn't that big either when it comes to his physical. What was he 7'2"? Yeah, but his muscular structure is not oh, that yeah, big he's either. A stick too. So the fact that these tall guys who don't really have a lot of muscle on their body, they're already frail to begin with. That could be some issue. That could be an issue down the line. I mean, I think even Joel Embiid, when he first came into the league, he was dealing with he injuries. He had some injuries too. But then he finally got it together a couple of years took, ago. It took two, three years to like get fully healthy and acclimated underneath him. Trust the process, right? That's what he kept it, saying. Exactly. It, when it comes to Victor, to me, when he goes up against somebody like Giannis or goes up against Jokic or goes up against Embiid, he's going to realize, like, Jesus Christ, these guys have been in the gym for years, and I'm getting bullied down here. Now, granted, like that's where his size could kind of come into play, and he could use that to his advantage. But like you said, you take one shoulder check, or if you're just getting posted up by the guys that I just mentioned, 
it's going to kind of put things into perspective and he's going to have to learn on the fly pretty quickly. But I think as long as he stays healthy, I think he'll be okay. And I think on the high side, you know, on when it comes to overall potential, I think that he could be a really good player in the NBA. And honestly, like this is a given when it comes to Kevin. I, we both want him to succeed at a high level. Oh yeah. Especially with somebody of that size of that stature. I mean, that guy has the potential to dominate the NBA as long as he stays healthy and he just develops his game appropriately. But there's a another side to the equation. If he gets hurt, if he's not available, if he doesn't get bigger where he could be able to compete against bigs in the NBA, could be a struggle for him. So he'll, he'll be a very interesting prospect to watch. I, I think it's far and away a fact that he's going to be the number one pick in the draft. It's just... How is it going to play out when he gets into the league and try to just adjust to that style? And I do think that he has, I think he does have the chance to be able to adjust fairly well, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Very interesting uh, prospect though. Very interesting prospect. Got to, yeah, I was about to say, we got to acknowledge his overall presence. We're excited to see what happens and especially where he lands because the draft is a lottery. So it's a matter of, you know, where the balls fall. Um, but speaking of struggle, we have to get into this NFL subject. And, and, and that's the conversation with Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens. So obviously we know that Lamar Jackson was injured again this year. Mm-hmm. Um, there were thoughts, there were rumors, there were reports that he may or may not be able to play in the wild card game against the Bengals. He comes out and says, I'm not healthy enough. The, the sprain that I have in my knee, I just, I don't want to re-aggravate it. And obviously to start last season or before last season began, the Baltimore Ravens and Lamar Jackson could not come to an agreement in terms of what he wanted for an extension. And Lamar Jackson is 100% eligible now for his extension, or he's a free agent. I can't remember technically because this is it, right? This is last year of his contract. So it's literally extender trade at this point or extender tag. You know what? Let me, let me double check here real quick. Because if they're threatening to tag him, if I'm not mistaken, that makes him a free agent. That could be the case. I just want to double check just to make sure yeah. he's technically an unrestricted free agent this offseason. So this is exactly this is exactly where the Ravens did not want to be. The Ravens dropped the ball in this one, in both of our opinions, and we're going to get into it in just a second. So Kyle, to kick this one your way, with everything looming around Lamar Jackson between the injuries and the contract and the guaranteed money, what are your thoughts on what has what has basically transpired throughout this tenure between the Ravens and Lamar. I think at this point, it seems to me that Lamar and the Ravens are not going to be able to come to an agreement for a contract extension. And based off of the reports that I've seen in regards to Lamar and the Ravens front office is that they just can't agree to a figure. I've seen reports where Lamar's camp and the Ravens front office are as far as $100 million when it comes to total earnings that Lamar could receive on a potential contract extension. And it essentially comes with this idea that Lamar Jackson wants a type of contract that is similar or basically identical to what Deshaun Watson received from the Cleveland Browns, a fully guaranteed five-year contract. To me, in my estimation, I thought the Browns overextended their hand in Deshaun, obviously the Browns needed a quarterback in that situation. But I think guaranteeing his contract 
that could actually be a mistake in the long in the long run for the Browns. We'll see how it plays out, but that's basically the model of what Lamar wants when it comes to his overall contract for the foreseeable future. And when it comes to the Ravens, from a front office perspective, I understand why they're not banking or really leaning to the idea of making that a reality for Lamar. Because when it comes to Lamar over the last couple of years, he has not been available. And it's the timing of his lack of availability that has been a detriment to Lamar and I think his overall contract negotiations because he's missed some critical games where the Ravens unfortunately needed him. And they had to resort to Tyler Huntley as a backup option and it wasn't going to work out. Because if you look at the difference between Tyler Huntley and Lamar Jackson, it's a night and day difference. You're going to go with Lamar every single day of the week. And I think in this case, I Lamar is probably getting that used against him. And it comes with the territory of being in the NFL. You're going to get hurt. But in the last two years, Lamar's missed a considerable amount of time. And it just happened to be at the worst time, essentially on a lead up to the playoffs. And I think from a negotiation perspective, it hasn't served him that well, just because I think the Ravens are using that against him. But when it comes to Lamar, Lamar is a top tier quarterback in the NFL. He can pass the ball effectively. He can run out of the pocket. Everybody knows that Lamar is one of the most athletic quarterbacks in NFL history. Arguably, you could say he's the most athletic quarterback we've ever seen in NFL history. It's just when it comes to this past season, I don't think that the Ravens supplied him with the requisite pieces to be able to go out there and move that Ravens offense effectively. I mean, great. So you have Mark Andrews, who's one of the better tight ends in the league, but their wide receiving core was weak at best. Kevin and I have talked about their wide receiving core ad nauseum for the last probably six months. And we were never sold on the fact that Lamar was going to be able to make this work with the targets that he was throwing to. The fact that the Ravens got off to a good start indicated Lamar's value to the team. And then when he got hurt, everything went to hell in a handbasket. And the team definitely took a step backwards without him being there. I think at the end of the day, I think the Ravens are probably looking at somewhere 35 to $40 million a year for Lamar. I think Lamar is asking for somewhere around like $50 million a year. And if that's the case, I just don't see these two sides coming together on an agreement. And it comes down to, well, are you going to franchise tag him? Or are you potentially going to trade him? And there's a really good option between the two of them with how it's going to play out in the real world. I think there's a very good chance that he could get traded. I think there's a very real chance that he could get franchise tagged. I think as we go farther along the way and there's no agreement whatsoever or even a step of progress, I think there's a very good chance more than likely that he'll get traded instead of franchise tagged because there's a real possibility that if he gets franchise tagged, he'll hold out. And the Ravens probably don't want that drama going into the season. So when it comes to I see this scenario playing out or this whole situation playing out. The Ravens have not helped themselves by what they did with Lamar the last season by not giving him the requisite pieces. And I think that Lamar's camp has completely gone over the top when it comes to their contract negotiations. But I understand where it comes from. But if Lamar's thinking that he's going to get a guaranteed contract, a fully guaranteed contract, that's just not going to happen. And more than likely there's a real possibility that he might get traded. And we'll see where it goes.
this whole situation has just blown out of proportion over the last two years, right? First, Cleveland goes out and gives Deshaun Watson a fully guaranteed contract. That is the stem, that is the root of all this evil is the Cleveland Browns, and they go and they break the quarterback market. They do the the thing that no one has ever done and give somebody a fully guaranteed contract in the NFL, especially at the quarterback position. Somebody who hadn't played in a year and a half, two years, someone that in, was in, in the face of the law, someone that had a bunch of off-the-field issues, and then Lamar Jackson looks at it and goes, damn, he got a fully guaranteed contract? Shit, I want one. You know, it's kind of like that Oprah segment. You get a contract, you get a contract, you get a contract. Like, Lamar has to wake up and realize the business side of things, right? Yes, the Ravens aren't winning without him, but he's also not there to help them win. It's almost like he's being unrealistic to this point. Like, I understand him wanting a fully guaranteed contract so he can solidify his future, provide for his family, and if he were to get hurt again because he is a mobile quarterback, they wouldn't be able to take a percentage of that away. I get it. The the security of it, all of it. I respect it. I really, really do. If Lamar was available for the last two years and they fell short in the playoffs and they couldn't win because of the receiving core or he had only gotten hurt one year out of the last two, you can make the argument for it. But like Kyle said, it's when he gets injured that just happens to suck. It is always to a point where it's right before the postseason or an extended period that leads into the postseason. And in this case, I believe firmly if the Ravens had Lamar, they would have beat the Bengals. And obviously with the Bengals going into, who did they play after that? The Bills. I think that the Ravens could have very well beat the Bills because the Bills weren't performing that way either. So it's like, I think that Baltimore could have eventually gotten to an AFC championship against the Chiefs. And we all saw how close that game was. So again, the point of what I'm getting at is if Lamar was available the last two years, I would understand how he's not willing to let go of this fully guaranteed situation. But he has missed over 15 games in the last two years, and an NFL season is only 17. You have to understand, bro, if you're not available to collect your check, how in the hell are they supposed to give you a check that you're going to get for the remainder of a four- or five-year deal without any punishment? I, you can't do that. His argument is, look, if I'm not here, you guys lose. If you were here, there's no definitive answer that we would have won. It's more than likely. But again, we don't have a sample size to go off of. Ever since his MVP season, Lamar Jackson has not been available. That's it. It's not the Kyrie situation in the NBA where he's choosing not to. He's just injury prone. It comes to the territory. You're the fastest quarterback in the NFL. You're the most mobile quarterback in the NFL. You have the most rushing yards in NFL history for a quarterback in a single season. It is going to happen when your offense is uh, – when your offense is fully revolved around the QB. There are no weapons on the outside, like Kyle said. It is all strictly Mark Andrews. It is all strictly RPO. Until something changes, I think both sides are going to just continue to be at a pass. I don't necessarily know if he gets traded because since he is an unrestricted free agent, he can technically go elsewhere and entertain contract negotiations with other teams. Now, if they were to slap him with a franchise tag again, That's not going to do Baltimore any good because, yes, that keeps him on the roster and that gives him an opportunity to do this again next year. But the franchise tag numbers like $32 or $33 million, you're going to pay him all that money to sit? I don't think that Baltimore is willing to make that definitive decision. If you were to give him the tag with the agreement upon, hey, we're going to tag you so that we can trade you and then you discuss your negotiation over there, 
that's a whole different conversation. But for them to just tag him and say, we're not trading you, we're not talking to you until next year, that's just a waste of money. You're not going to set your franchise up to do anything. You're going to waste years of your youth, of your prime, of your athletes, of your players, of your personnel, of your coaching staff. You just extended Roquan Smith. Why are you going to waste time like that? You know what I'm saying? Like, Justin Houston isn't getting any younger if he's still available on this team. JPP, I know, was signed for the remainder of the year. I don't know if he's going to get any younger. You know what I'm saying? Like, all these star players that they have on this, on this roster, they're getting up there in age. You're not going to go waste their careers to say, you know what, we're going to just we're we're going to be we're going to be selfish. Lamar, you've been bad. We're going to punish you. We're going to tag you if you don't want to play. Screw you. I just I I can't see Baltimore being that stupid because that is all going to go towards the cap and that is going to be a waste of money. If Baltimore is smart, they negotiate a trade immediately. Listen, we are not on the same playing field. I am not giving you a fully guaranteed contract. We are willing to tag and send you off. That is as far as I would go off on the Baltimore front office because I have to give them credit for holding steadfast. I have to give them credit for holding strong. I wouldn't give him a fully guaranteed contract either. With his injured history, the older he gets, him being a mobile quarterback, we've seen what mobile quarterbacks do. The older they get, they just put more miles on themselves and they get injured. Again, if I'm the Ravens, we're discussing a trade, not an extension. We're trying to find a best place for you to go that's not going to affect us in the conference. I would send him to the NFC so I don't have to worry about him. Straight up, as unfortunate as it is, if Lamar would have been healthy, this would have been a whole different conversation. But it's a business. You got to do what you got to do. And it's just not a smart investment to give somebody $200, $300 million fully guaranteed with no guarantee they're not going to get hurt. It's like you said, Kev. When it comes to mobile quarterbacks, you can't bank on on their side. You can't bank on their availability. I mean, there have been guys who are nearly not as mobile as Lamar Jackson. You can even look at like Jimmy Garoppolo and Aaron Rodgers. Granted, they're mobile, but not like Lamar. And even they have had injury history where to the point where Jimmy's missed a significant amount of time in his case. And, and Rodgers has missed a considerable amount of time when he uh, broke his collarbone a couple of years back against the Vikings. I believe that was a game they played against and the Vikings. And against Detroit or something like that. Multiple times. He's broken it like twice. But... I mean, look, we all acknowledge that Lamar has great athletic ability and he has the ability to be able to execute at a high level. And don't get me wrong, there's going to be a team that's going to move heaven and earth to be able to trade for Lamar. There's no doubt about that. I just think when it comes to this potential contract negotiation that teams are going to be presented with him, are you really going to bank on a 45 to $50 million a year hit that's fully guaranteed and you're not so sure that he's he's even going to be out there on the field consistently game in and game out. That's going to be a tough sell for those teams in the front offices. And I can understand why the Ravens are very hesitant about pulling the trigger on a fully guaranteed contract with him. I think if it was like 50% guaranteed or 75% guaranteed, I think the Ravens would be more open to that idea. But fully guaranteed, from a business perspective, that just doesn't make sense for the Ravens front office. So... Tangent incoming. Do you remember a few months ago where we talked about potential trades for the number one overall pick? And I had read a report live on the episode where it was the Baltimore Ravens discussed with Chicago. Yeah, I remember we talked with about you, that. With Chicago having over $100 million available in cap space, the number one overall pick, do you think, again, there's no confirming reports here, guys. This is speculation in, in my mind, what I'm thinking. Chicago's got the most money in the league by a mile. 
Chicago's got draft capital. Do you think that they should pull the trigger, get Lamar Jackson, spend the remainder of their cap to build up the line and draft wide receivers or whatever have you? I think I think they have an opportunity to do so. You think that makes sense? It makes sense. If they want to move on from Justin Fields, which I don't really know if they're keen on that because some of the reports that I've seen when it comes to the Bears and their overall feelings about Justin is they think that he's their guy for the foreseeable future. But it depends on the proposal. I guarantee you if a front office gets a prime offer in regards to Lamar Jackson and the Bears are at least open to hearing it, there's a possibility that the Bears may accept it, but it has to be it has to be a really good proposal as far as I see it. Because like you said, Kev, when it comes to their cap spaces here, they're I think they're cleared at least ninety million, if not a hundred million. They're, they're over a hundred. They're gonna have to basically bake in the idea that they're gonna lose half of it with one player. If that's worth it to them, it would bring a huge shift for the Bears. Because the Bears haven't been relevant for a while. It's been Because that a couple would also years. get Lamar out of the AFC. Yep. That would give Baltimore an opportunity to build with Bryce Young, Stroud, and they could use the remainder of that cap space that they were going to waste on Lamar, bring in some wide receiver talent, draft some more defensive players. Like I feel like it's a win-win for both sides. It's just a matter of what's going to happen with Justin Fields because you're not going to include the Fields thing. and the number one overall pick. That's the that's thing. Just, that's, that's, a that's, lot of- that's the weird part because like, what's going to happen to Justin? Because I feel like Justin, Justin get traded on draft night. Like, do they keep maybe. both of them on the roster? Well, and, and that's the thing is okay if that trade's going to go down, but Justin's not a part of it. Justin's not going to be the number two guy. Like, that's no. Not gonna he's, he's going to have to get traded and go somewhere else. And so I wonder if they would maybe. I don't know if they really do three team trades in the NFL. Yeah, I don't know either. I, Again, it was really... it was something that I had read. I don't remember if it was a random Bleacher Report article. An NFL scripts article on Twitter, like there's so many different pages that come out with different. Again, it would no, nothing has been confirmed, guys. Nothing has been talked about. These are just speculations of what people think. I'm thinking the more this happens, the more they talk about all the discrepancies with finances. Chicago being so desperate to win, maybe they don't want to develop him. Maybe they just want to say, you know, screw it. Let's go get somebody that can help us win now. I don't know. It's just it, it it just becomes more and more interesting the more that Chicago excuse me the more that Baltimore and Lamar's camp just can't continue to get on the same page. Well, here's the thing: since you threw out the Bears, here's their starting wide receiver cast, and you tell me if this is better than what the Ravens have right now. So number one is Darnell Mooney, two is Chase Claypool, Equinemius St. Brown is the third option. Then they have Byron Pringle, and the goat Nikhil Harry. Greatest I'll take that over Baltimore's wide receiving room all day. The first two names I'll, I'll take that in handy all day. Even Hands though that you're not, even though that you think that Chase is a clown. I can't stand Chase Claypool and Juju Smith-Schuster, but that is more offensive talent than Lamar Jackson has had at the wide receiver position in his whole career. Duvernay and Demarcus Robinson. Yeah, because they've, DeMar- been so, they've been so available. Demarcus Robinson was the number four or five option on that Chiefs offense. Yeah, Deshaun wrong, Jackson he's... was also there at age 56 years old, and he did a whole lot. I'm pretty sure he pulled his hamstring walking into the stadium. Get the hell out of here. It just kind of goes back to reinforce the point that the Ravens, when it came to building the roster this year on the offensive side of the ball, they failed. That's not on Lamar. Lamar no, made it work. 
when he was there. The problem is, is that it was a double-edged sword for Lamar this year. He played well when he was out there on the field, but he missed a significant amount of time, especially when they needed him late. And the fact that he wasn't out there, and also the fact that he didn't go out there for that wild card game. I don't know what his health status was going into that game. I know it was not 100%. I know that. Yeah, dude, it was a grade two, I think, PCL sprain, which is the back of your kneecap. I wouldn't have I, played either, bro. I, you can't. It, that You can't run. Yeah, and the thing is, I don't know how Lamar would be effective simply just in the pocket, but Tyler Huntley compared to Lamar Jackson in a, in a playoff situation. Oh, I know. And I know. It, 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 it just comes down to whether or not that he was even at like 80, 85%. I doubt it. If, if he was at that point, bro, you got to play. Yeah, I agree. You, you got to play. But if you're not, if you're only like at 50, 60%, you're probably a bigger hindrance to your team. But if you were at 80, 85 and you didn't play, that's a bad look on you because guys are already banged up to begin with going into that game. Agreed. So, but I think Lamar was obviously playing it for the long-term aspects. He was thinking can't, about the future, which I don't blame necessarily him blame him. But look, if Lamar was on that team, I can tell you this. The Bears would not be a 3-14 and 14 team. Agreed. They would not be that. They'd be the offensive line is probably the worst in football, but they would have to build upon that, and they have plenty of cap afterwards. Hypothetically, again, if they had 100 flat and they gave Lamar 50, you got $50 million to rebuild the line, and whatever remaining draft picks you get back from Baltimore and whatever you have remaining from that trade, there is no chance in hell... You can't give me something better than what you had out there on the field last season. And you say, yo, we just got Lamar. You want to come block for him? Chicago's a big city market. It's just unfortunate that that new stadium that they have proposed isn't going to be done for another five, six years or whatever. So, Did they actually sign off on that? It's it's there. It's I think it's going to be redone instead of it being a whole new arena. Yeah, because we both saw the the outline of what they would do to renovate Soldier Field. I mean, it was quite a significant upgrade to what it is currently. Got to change the field too. That 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 field is awful. Soldier Field is just yeah. It's just it kind of comes down to whether or not that they're going to use artificial turf or natural turf. And, and to me, guys in the NFL have been talking about bringing natural turf back because they think that this artificial turf is a contributor to these guys blowing out their knees. I mean, look what happened in the ACLs. Super Bowl. What was that? It was that. It was the artificial grass that they had in the Super Bowl. It, I, I mean, they were slipping and sliding all over the place. It looked like natural grass. Peaks. It looked like natural grass, but I don't know what type of turf it was. You'd have to kind of look back and see what kind of turf they laid down. But yeah, guys were slipping and sliding the whole time. And I remember when the Patriots and the Seahawks played in Super Bowl Forty Nine in that same stadium. You could tell that they were playing on actual grass because there were grass stains on all these guys' jerseys at the end of the game. When it came to Super Bowl 57, that was the same thing. But the turf was just, I'm not going to say it was unplayable, but I mean, it wasn't that far away from it. Yeah, it was was damn near impossible to get a significant cut. I mean, Pacheco almost tore his ACL celebrating in the end zone. That was just scary. I just remember in one of the camera shots, there was literally like a bucket full of cleats that had been used already. Now, I don't know if that was just, you know, they're going to change them out so 
guys just have fresh cleats or if it was no, because the turf that was, was that bad. That was way more than it probably should have been, to be honest with you, in my opinion. But that, again, that's neither here nor there. We, we, the point is, speculation with Lamar is going to be limitless until free agency opens up in a few weeks. We have no idea what's going to happen draft night in a couple of months. It's just something to think about because this conversation continues to get heated every other week. We're just going to be monitoring it as it proceeds. So we got to stay in the NFL. And mm-hmm. Kyle, we got two teams we got to talk about. Who are we talking about today? Well, the first one is going to be the 49ers. We'll get to the Bengals to round out the episode. But um, Kevin, honestly, get this one to me. I'll talk about the 49ers first. So the San Francisco 49ers got all the way to the NFC Championship with a third string backup quarterback in Brock Purdy, who unfortunately gets hurt in that game, and they fall short and get blown up by Philly in the biggest game of the season. So Kyle, with the 49ers having the league's best defense, one of the best coaches in the NFL, and an absolutely incredible season. What do you think are some needs that they have to improve upon for 2023? Kev, okay, I'm not going to lie. This is kind of this is going to be a tough one for me because when it comes to the 49ers, they're one of the most well-rounded teams in the NFL, offensively, defensively, special teams. This team is stacked, and you could tell during the season they had a third-string quarterback and Brock Purdy and. The team didn't miss a beat. You could even make a case that the team was playing better with Brock than they were with Jimmy Garoppolo, and that's really saying something. But, you know, obviously when it comes to the 49ers, there's one aspect that I want to focus on, and that is the quarterback situation. When it comes to who they're potentially going to start at the beginning of next year, it's a toss-up between Brock Purdy and Trey Lance. And both guys had significant injuries this year obviously Trey was their number one guy at the beginning of the year he gets hurt early on Jimmy comes in in relief he gets hurt and then Brock comes in and just lights it up and then he unfortunately goes down with a UCL injury in his elbow and that surgery recovery is set for a timetable of six to nine months which you know on the bright side could be around the time training camp starts but if you were to drag it out he may not come back until October. It kind of depends on how quickly and how effectively he's able to handle his rehab. But that's going to be a burning question that the 49ers are going to have to contend with this offseason. It's who's going to be their number one guy at the quarterback spot. And listen, I, I understand when it comes to the 49ers as a unit, they're solid defensively and offensively. They have the skilled players to be here to be able to compete at a high level. But if your quarterback situation is in flux based on guys getting hurt and you have a potential quarterback competition between Trey Lance and Brock Purdy. The time is going to tell who's going to be able to earn that spot and essentially lead the offense from here on out. As far as I see it, when it comes to what Brock did, I thought what Brock did was really impressive. And I think from a front office perspective, it makes sense long-term to go with Brock because the potential contract that he's going to get down the line, I don't think would dwarf what Trey Lance could get. Because if Trey Lance were to come onto the scene and I mean, really light it up, you know, Trey within the next couple of years could potentially get $35, $40 million a year contract. But the problem is, is that he just can't stay healthy. When you look at Brock, Brock signed a four year deal when he got drafted by the 49ers. And you look at his cap hit over the next couple of years. It's not in the millions of dollars. It's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So from 
a financial perspective, from a front office perspective, it makes sense to stick with Brock and maybe have Trey Lance as the backup, even though from a cap situation, it's kind of crazy that your backup would be the guy who's technically getting paid more. But Brock was able to show it. Brock led them to the NFC Championship in that quarterback spot, and he did so effectively. He didn't turn the ball over, which was huge. He didn't cost them any games, which is kind of crazy to say with somebody who was the last draft pick in the NFL. He brought a level of poise that I think nobody was really expecting unless you were a member of the 49ers and maybe some diehard 49ers fans who saw some potential with him. But to me, that's the biggest burning question when it comes to the 49ers this year. There are some other areas that I know Kev will touch on, but as far as I see it, the biggest one to me is their quarterback situation. And I think at this point, I would tend to side with Brock being the starting quarterback for the foreseeable future over Trey. But I think Trey could get a start depending whether or not Brock's ready to go week one. But I'll just leave it at that. I mean, I agree completely with Kyle. The quarterback position has got to be the most important piece. They're doing everything that they're doing with the staff that they currently have assimilated, obviously with the team that they currently have built around them. And now we're talking about the biggest piece being the quarterback position because all three of them are hurt. And you're like, is Jimmy G going to come back? Probably not. Is Trey Lance going to be ready? More than likely. Is Brock Purdy going to be able to take the horn again? Maybe. I just... There's so many looming questions at the most important position. So I'll kind of backtrack into a different position here. And I'm going to go with cornerback depth, right? So Jimmy Ward's a free agent. There are a couple different instances where it looked like Jimmy was specifically kind of hinting at becoming a free agent. He kind of took the route of like, I did good. I didn't really have any problems against Philly. Like I only let up blah, blah, blah passes. That's just not a good look. That's not something you want on your team, especially with how deep they currently already are. Um, in every other position, quite frankly, I mean, in the linebacker position, you have an all pro at the defensive, uh, at the defensive line position, you have a multitude of monsters at the safety position. They're deep. It's just, you have to figure out what you're going to do to replace Jimmy. If he does leave. And even if he does it, you're going to need some, some slot depth. You're going to need some backup depth. You're going to need just, that is probably going to be the weakest thing that I can possibly think of with over the top of my head, because they got Kittle at the tight end. At the running back, you have Christian McCaffrey. You have Elijah Mitchell. At the offensive line, you have one of the best, if not the best, left tackle in the game. H- how much more can you potentially think? Like, they're wide receivers with Debo and Ayuk and, J- and Jawan. Is it Jawan Jennings, Kyle? Yes, sir. They have a very solid receiving core. And then, like I said, defensively, they're really, really tight wound and tight knit. So I'm, we're picking at straws here, trying to figure out positions that they need. And like Kyle said, they don't really need a whole lot. But if I had to name something that wasn't the quarterback, it would have to be some cornerback depth pending that Jimmy leaves. And even if he doesn't, just to have some security in that secondary. When it comes to the 49ers, Kev, I, it, you're kind of gasping at straws when it comes to issues as the team is presented with. I just don't see them being that weak. I mean, they made it to an NFC Championship game. And Brock's injury played a massive role in them losing that game. So you you couldn't even really see the 49ers compete at a high level in the biggest game of the year just because of that quarterback injury. So, I mean, as far as I see it, the 49ers are going to be fine. I think for the foreseeable future, for the next two to three years, they're going to be solid. And depending on how the quarterback situation plays out, which is going to be a huge point of emphasis this offseason, 
I think we'll probably get a better picture of where things will stand once we kind of get to, I'd say probably May, June, just kind of like that lead up before we get into training camp. We'll probably get a better picture of where things are going to go for that 49ers quarterback situation. But outside of that, this team, contractually speaking, is set up pretty well. So they don't really have a lot of, I would say, big name free agents to take care of. It's not like they have to deal with like Debo Samuel or you could look at Fred Warner or Nick Bozo. Those guys are locked up. And as far as I see it, when it comes to their free agent situation, it's a lot better than some other teams in the NFL. So I think as far as I see it, the 49ers aren't going anywhere. They're going to be a competitive powerhouse in the NFC for their foreseeable future. But they could potentially lose their one of their defensive captains in Jimmy Ward. And that would probably be a little bit of a step back in that part of the defense. But I think they could, they could find some depth in their secondary and maybe try to replace that void that he could potentially leave if he leaves in free agency. But uh, when it comes to the 49ers, I think they'll be fine. Speaking of another team uh, that's in a pretty primo situation, it would be the Bengals. Granted, the Bengals fell short. In making another Super Bowl this year, they had a chance to go to back-to-back Super Bowls. They fell short against the Chiefs on the road in Arrowhead in the AFC Championship game. But nonetheless, when it comes to the Bengals, the Bengals, as far as Kevin and I have seen it, see it, they are definitely the number two team in the AFC right behind the Chiefs. I think as far as we see it, they have supplanted the Bills as that number two team. The Bills, I thought that the Bills were probably the number two team in the AFC. That is no oh, longer yeah. the case. And when it comes to the Bills, it's going to be a while before we pick them as a Super Bowl pick again. But the Bengals definitely show that they can compete at a high level. Just fell a little bit short this year from going to Super Bowl 57. They do have some free agents to take care of this offseason. And overall, the core of the team is pretty much intact. It's just whether or not they're going to be able to bring some free agents back into the fold for this upcoming season. Uh, excuse me, upcoming season. So, Kev, to kick this one to you. What are some things that you think the Bengals need to take care of this upcoming offseason? I mean, the fact that I have to say this for what seems to be the hundredth year in a row is just kind of sad, but it's got to be offensive line depth. I know that some of their starters were hurt. I know that their backups were in, but when it comes to that situation, those backups played atrocious in the game that mattered most. I mean, to start the season, that offensive line was horrendous. It took them four or five games to really kind of get things going underneath and I don't necessarily know their cap situation either, but aside from Kappa and Collins, they really need to figure out that line because you were just going to get Joe Burrow killed without protection. And it showed that the, the, the offensive line broke down in a lot of situations throughout the year. They had some flashes and some stretches where they looked great, only a sack or two a game. Then they had some where they let up four or five. Again, they played great against Buffalo, but then Kansas City was able to, to keep Joe on his ass. So that's one for me. I know people are going to say, well, they were injured. Yeah, well, when your backups suck that much, they probably shouldn't be on a roster, especially in the most important game of the season. At number two, I'm going to go with the secondary. They have some big free agents that they're going to have to bring back. Vaughn Bell, obviously Jesse Bates. Uh, Eli Apple is going to hopefully be in the XFL somewhere on an irrelevant team in the next couple of years because he sucks. But it's not hate. He's ass. Um, you got to really look at it like, okay, well, if we do happen to lose either of those players that I had just named, that is going to be detrimental to the 
to the secondary for the Bengals. So I would say re-signing them and adding some depth just in case in the coming draft or in free agency. And then you have to focus on the pass rush. They had 30 sacks. That was fourth worst in the NFL, Kyle. Yeah, it was bottom of the barrel bad. We're talking about scraping for crumbs here. I know it's easier said than done to get a sack in the NFL, but when you're a team that plays 17 games and and all you can manage is a sack or two a game, that's pretty embarrassing. And considering the Colts don't exactly have a named pass rusher that isn't DeForest Buckner or Yannick Ngakwe, that's pretty bad when you have Trey Hendrickson on that side. So I would probably assume that the Bengals are going to probably go after a big-time pass rusher to improve that defense somewhere in free agency, or they're going to go and draft somebody because they're going to need some depth on the defensive side because we all know what the offense can produce when healthy. That defense has got to find a way to make plays, get some turnovers, and pressure the quarterback. So in order, offensive line for me is going to be the most important piece. I don't care if it's backups, backups to backups or practice squad backups. You got to have people ready to go because Joe's got to be able to stand up. Then you got to go secondary and re-signing and prioritizing Von Bell and Jesse Bates. And then, of course, like I said, you got to go and add some depth to the pass rush. Kev, I honestly don't have anything else to add. I think you pretty much hit the three points that I was going to go over. The biggest thing that I would point to, like you outlined already, was the pass rush. You know, when you're in the bottom five of the NFL, Kev, they were alongside teams like the Raiders when it came to their overall pass rush. That That's not company you want to be a part of. And just to kind of expand on that pass rush point, look at the Chiefs game. The AFC Championship game, biggest game of the year. Patrick Mahomes is limited in that game. And, Kev, I don't even really remember Pat facing any issues whatsoever when it came to overall pass rush. That offensive line was nuts. And, you know, give kudos to the Chiefs offensive line. They stepped up in a huge way to give Pat time to be able to execute at a high level. And they passed with flying colors. But to me, that's an indictment on that Bengals pass rush. If you're in a situation where you're going up against an injured quarterback, not somebody who's dealing with like just a small little injury, but a high ankle sprain that sidelines guys up to 8 to 12 weeks. But Pat was able to come back and play at a decent clip. And you can't get an effective pass rush where I kept, I don't think they got a sack against him in that game. You got to step it up because Joe Burrow and the offense for the Bengals, they did enough to potentially win that game. But the defense, man, they let up some plays that they just couldn't afford, especially late in the game. And the fact that they weren't able to get Pat off the field and the Chiefs offense off the field in critical moments of the game, it's on their defense, especially when, you got three, four defensive linemen, and you can't register a sack. Just can't have that. So, yeah, if I had to take away like the biggest point of emphasis this offseason with them is that they have to improve their pass rush. And that could honestly just be telling the guys in the locker rooms, like, hey, we got to turn up the intensity. We got to be better. We got to ramp up this pass rush, and we have to pressure the quarterback more effectively. It doesn't even have to be in sacks per se. But just step up the pressures. If you're able to do that, that could be enough to force an errant pass or throw or force a throwaway. Something to get them off the field. And if they could do that, that could bode well for them in the foreseeable future. That could serve them well. But, Kevin, it's safe to say that the Bengals are still one of the best teams in the AFC. They're one of the best teams in the NFL. they got an upcoming star in Joe Burrow if he's not already a star to begin with. And I think... The Bengals and the Chiefs and the Bills, they're going to be at it competitively for the next couple of years. 
that's the three-headed monster in the AFC right now. And the Bengals have earned that spot. It's just whether or not they're, they're going to be able to get over the hump and get to that number one spot over the Chiefs. Because the Chiefs, as far as I see it, they're still the best team in the AFC. It just won another Super Bowl, their second one in four years. And, excuse me, their second one in three years, as far as like the actual years that the Super Bowls took place. But overall, they'll be okay. I don't see the Bengals going anywhere anytime soon. They'll be, I don't see them dropping, I should say, to be more specific. But I think they knock out those things that you outlined and who did the pass rush? They'll be good to go. It's not uh, It's not like the other teams in the NFL that need a lot of help. I mean, again, we're getting higher and higher up the totem pole in terms of this particular segment until we get to the bottom of the barrel. Like, we went through all the playoff teams that were going to obviously go from, like, you know, some of the worst teams and what they need to improve upon. And you guys got a little sneak peek as to what we think some teams should do, like Chicago and so on and so forth. But overall, obviously, that means next two teams are going to have to be Philadelphia Eagles next week. And the Kansas City Chiefs, who just won the Super Bowl. So there's not a lot of needs that you would assume the two best teams in the league are going to need. But you'll hear about what we have to say about those two teams uh, in our next episode. But uh, as of right now, that about wraps it up. Yeah, I've got nothing else to go over. If there's anything that... If you're coming up with one more tangent off the top of your mind, the, the floor is yours, but I can't think of one right now. No, man, the mind is going to mush. It's getting to that point. It's been a long day, long week, like we said in the beginning. So let's just kind of cut it where it is. Ladies and gentlemen, we appreciate the support. Any way we've gotten it, audio, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. I mean, it has been such a good time lately to see everything grow and to just know that you guys are enjoying the content. It's showing in our numbers, and we're just greatly grateful for the opportunity we get to do day in, day out. So, I mean, with uh, without further ado, Kyle, unless you have anything, that's it for me, man. I got nothing more to add. Just like Kev said, we appreciate the support wherever it's coming from. Uh, We hope it continues for the foreseeable future. And stay tuned with what we have on deck for you guys because the content's going to be rolling from here on out for the foreseeable future. So we're not going to slow down in any way, shape, or form. But I'll leave it at that. Once again, thank you guys for tuning in wherever you came from. And we will see you guys next week. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid.